0: Hello and welcome to New Books in European Studies. I'm your host, Nicholas Walton. Every week we look at a new book connected with Europe that is particularly interesting and interview the author. This week the author is Charles Emerson, who's written a terrific book about the far north called The Future History of the Arctic. A very distinctive geography lies at the heart of the Arctic that brings in Russia, Eurasia and North America and not just Europe. The Arctic is a subject that is becoming increasingly important as changes in the climate open up parts of the far and frozen north and Charles's book is an excellent guide to both the past, the present and the future of this remarkable area. I hope you enjoy the interview. Well, I'm here with uh, Charles Emerson. His book is in front of me. It's The, uh, the Future History of the Arctic with a very long uh, sort of subtitle, How Climate Resources and Geopolitics are Reshaping the North and Why It Matters to the World. Uh, welcome, Charles. Feeling okay? Absolutely. It's a bit soggy outside and uh, I'm certainly uh, suffering from a bit of hay fever. You've got a bit of a cough, so let's see if I'm we can get through this. I'm calling it tiger flu, yes. Tiger flu.
1: I just came back from Indonesia, so I'm saying I got it from the Tigers. You're showing off now. Probably not,
0: yes. (laughs) Okay, well, why don't we start off um, with you. Um, Sort of, What's your background? Where did you come from? And I suppose ultimately, what brought you to write a book about the Arctic?
1: Well, my background, as you probably can't hear from my accent, is that I was actually born in Australia, in Melbourne, so in the Southern Hemisphere, much closer to Antarctica than to the Arctic. Um, I moved to the UK when I was very young, or rather my parents moved to the UK to London for work. And so I I grew up here in the UK um, and was educated here. I studied history up at Oxford and then went to study international law and international uh, relations in Paris uh, and then worked for a variety of different organisations in Europe, first for the International Crisis Group in Brussels, then for the World Economic Forum in Geneva and then decided I wanted to write this book and then now I work for the uh, Chatham House Organisation in London. And the, the way I got into the Arctic, well, there are sort of really two answers to this. One is the, the real answer, um, which really <laughs> relates to my, my, my childhood, and essentially two parts of that. The first is that I was the kind of child who, you probably were too, um, who started reading magazines like The Economist and The National Geographic at an extremely young age, horrifically precocious, slightly megalomaniacal. (laughs) Um, And there was a particular article in the National National Geographic in 1978 called Strategic Spitsbergen. And I probably didn't read it in 1978 because I was two, um, but sometime in the early 1980s. And that article, first of all, had amazing photographs of the North, um, which I think would capture the minds, do capture the minds of many, many, many children. But also there was a fascinating political element to it, and which even at that young age, I found fascinating because this was a place near to the North Pole, lots of polar bears around where Norwegians, who I kind of somehow understood were, in a vertical, our friends uh, and citizens of the Soviet Union, who I kind of understood were not our friends. This is where these two groups uh, met, collided, played chess, competed. Uh, and so there was something sort of very exciting, even at that, that young age, about the Arctic to me. Mm-hmm. And I guess on top of that um, was the fact that I grew up in London in a room with a huge map of the world on one wall I, I described it We all did it's a well, fanta- it's, it's the
0: way to, it's the a fantastic start in life it Put is, a map it, it, of the world above a boy's bed and you're away
1: Absolutely obviously obviously our parents were both thinking we were going to be heads of state by the age of 18 <clears> but um, but uh, the the thing about this map was that it was slightly too large for the wall and so the southern hemisphere was somewhat truncated Um, But it did mean that I woke up every morning and I was looking at Greenland, I was looking at uh, Gotthab as Nuke was then known, I was looking at Novaya Zemlya, I was looking at Severnaya Zemlya, I was looking at Spitsbergen, I was looking at the Canadian Arctic. Uh, And you can hardly fail to wake up every morning confronted by these white spaces and miraculous sounding names and not want to go there. Mm-hmm. So I,
0: I, I, rem- I, I was exactly the same with Novaya Zemlya, and the other one, the Gulf of Ob, always stuck in my head. The uh, Gulf of Ob, the Gulf indeed. of Ob. Yeah, you know, in those uh, teenage moments where you just want to be left alone, and I thought, well, I can go there and take a gun, and I can, I can live off whale meat and whatever. We've always got Ob. That's <laughs> yeah. a
1: nice, that's a nice thought, isn't it? Um, so so that, that was sort of really the childhood explanation. Then, in a sense, more prosaically, uh, my work at the World Economic Forum, a lot of that was about the interplay between. Uh, Energy security issues, geopolitics, and environment, um, and environmental change. And one of the areas of the world where you can really see how these issues interrelate, how they play out, how they're playing out now, and how they may play out in the future is, of course, in the Arctic. So I had a kind of childhood motivation and then a more serious academic. um, Absolutely. reason for wanting to go up there and and study it.
0: Okay. Well... uh Let's look at the Arctic from the point of view of maps. I mean, you've just yes. introduced the idea of having this big wall map over your bed when you're when you're a kid. Um, if you actually centre a map on the Arctic, the world suddenly looks like a very very different place. Uh, all of these areas that look obviously on the normal projection, the Mercator project, projection of of the world, they all look you know Greenland is a long way away from the Gulf of Ob, etc. Yes. But suddenly it makes sense in a completely different way. The geography just knits it all together and it, it's like a rim of land around uh, a normally frozen sea.
1: Precisely and indeed if you spend any time in the Arctic then of course the maps of the world that you'll see are always maps which are polar centric. Now for most of history actually a polar centric map has been um, not particularly useful because there wasn't much you could actually do across the Arctic Ocean. Well you could, you could fly across it, you could lob nuclear missiles across it um, but it wasn't the most useful or interesting map of the world. When, of course, that's beginning to change. And I think that that perspective on the world, centred on the North Pole, um, will be much, much more common in the years to come. And it does very much change our ideas of the proximity of land masses.
0: Mm -hmm. So let's go through the countries that have... A, you know, a stake in the Arctic. Obviously, you've got the United States, you've got Canada, you've then got Denmark through Greenland. Yes. You then have Norway. You have. Uh, do you have the, uh, the the top little bit of uh, Sweden and Finland nudging Indeed. their way into it, but not on the Arctic Ocean itself. Yes. And then you have Russia. Have I missed any out?
1: Well, you've got. There's a debate over whether Iceland is a, oh, an Iceland, Arctic coastal course. state or not. I, I personally think Iceland is an Arctic coastal state, but there are some who are who, who debate that point.
0: Right. And uh, you start off the book. I mean, the book has got so much in, in it, but it uh, kicks off with a, with a large amount of history, um, looking at things like figures such as explorers yes. and how they actually saw it. And th- th- There's a couple of um, – are they both Norwegian? Uh, Fridtjof Nansen. Yes. Uh, and he had a very heroic vision of what the Arctic was. And then you had this other chap uh, – Wilhelm Stephenson. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't going to attempt the first name. Um, and he had a much more active view of the Arctic. It wasn't a yes. forbidding place. It was a place to interact with. Absolutely. Um, uh, take us back to, to, to how the Arctic was viewed back in the days of these explorers or even before then.
1: Well, I mean, it, it's interesting that actually most Arctic exploration, um, the search for the Northwest Passage, for example, which is something is, which still absolutely captivates um, many people on both sides of the Atlantic and, and more broadly, Um That, of course, was nothing about finding things in the north in particular. It was about finding a route um, from west to east or from Mm -hmm. east to west. Um, So the north was viewed as this sort of icy barrier, and if we could penetrate it, that would be great, Um, but basically en route somewhere else. Um, That began to change at the beginning of the 20th century when getting to the North Pole itself became an objective of states, mostly not, frankly, for reasons of, geopolitical or geoeconomic significance, but for reasons which related to science and to national prestige. Um, So somebody like Friedhof Nansen, um, he's actually a bit more complicated than that, because although he's very much bound up in Norway's national story, as Arctic exploration is, um, at the same time, he he was a scientist and he had things to prove in the Arctic. He had hypotheses which he wanted to prove or disprove about the Arctic, um, he was the one, for example, who proved the theory of, of polar drift. Um, but he was this sort of rather um, sort of larger-than-life, craggy...
0: I was going to ask you to describe him because I've just opened the book and yes. this guy looks extraordinary. The, uh, in amongst all the other f- fantastic photographs that you've got, you've got this little oval picture of someone that looks as though he could be a singer in a heavy metal band or or, <laughs> or, or, or could... You know, could be a mass murderer or whatever. He's He's got icy blue eyes. He does. He's got the most extraordinary, you know, white, almost blonde mustache. Yes. And he's staring at the, the person taking the taking the photograph as if he's about to kill him.
1: Well, he was a very, very intense and dedicated person. And that comes uh, across. And that comes across, indeed. I mean, the, you have to be pretty dedicated and intense if you're going to spend, you know, uh, several months traversing Greenland for the first time, for example, with no with no possibility of coming back because of the way you've chosen to do it, which is what he did. Or you have to be pretty intense if you're going to lock yourself in the Arctic ice, deliberately sail a boat up to the Arctic, lock your boat in the Arctic ice, and then let yourself drift with the current of the ice uh, until the following summer when it will release you. And that (laughs) way you'll prove um, the theory of polar drift, which previously was, was very much an outsider's hypothesis. So he was a very, very intense individual. He saw the Arctic as a way of as a sort of frontier for science. Um, but he also became very much a, a national hero of Norway. And he, he he succumbed somewhat to the sort of romantic hero explorer in a way that um, Stefansson was... He was never really going to do that. He didn't have the look for a start. <laughs> uh, but also he was just... He was, he was an outsider and he was forever an iconoclast um, when it came to the Arctic. He was forever pointing out why the idea of the arctic for example as unfriendly unpopulated um not a place where economies or nations could develop economically and politically he always wanted to show that in fact that that wasn't true uh, that the arctic was in inverted commas a friendly place that it was a frontier for economic and political and industrial development
0: and uh this romantic idea of the, of, of the Arctic, it almost goes back to what we were talking about with this map above your bed, yeah. this place that it's difficult to travel through, the, the, the cold, the, the loneliness. How many people actually live in a place as hostile as
1: the Arctic? Well, a surprising number. I mean, six million people live in the Arctic. Uh, most of them live actually in Russia. Uh, and most of them are not. Many people don't understand this, but many people in the north, most people in the north, are not, in fact, Inuit. The distribution of indigenous populations in the Arctic is very, very uneven. So, for example, in in Greenland, it's most of the population, nearly all of the population. Uh, in Canada, it's a high proportion of the population. Uh, in the European Arctic, much lower, and in the Russian Arctic, much, much less. Um, so it is a place. It is a place where people live. It has inhabitants. Um, Many of them lead lives which to us would seem quite extreme because the conditions around them are quite extreme. Um, That's mostly in the American Arctic, which has much, much, uh, has very different um, weather and climate to the European Arctic, which, frankly, it's not that hard to get to. You can fly up to northern Norway. uh, You can fly up to uh, northern Russia fairly easily. uh, And it's not so, so different from places which are below the Arctic Circle.
0: And what about the, uh, let's concentrate on on Russia, which you've just mentioned. Um, The Russians, the Soviets in particular, and Stalin even more particularly, saw the Arctic and and the Russian Arctic as a place of opportunity, uh, an underdeveloped area and a place that obviously in the the drive towards industrialization was uh, vital.
1: Yes, that's absolutely right. I mean, one of the interesting things which I came across in writing the book was the fact which I hadn't previously been aware of, that Stalin himself was actually a political prisoner of the Tsarist regime in the Arctic. So he had first-hand experience of the Arctic. And indeed, while he was there, he developed this, these rather fantastical myths about him as a great um, Arctic skier. Um, and indeed, Nansen, the great Nansen, mm-hmm. went to Siberia in 1913 when Stalin was a prisoner there. And Nansen actually met the police chief who Stalin later attempted to bribe um, his way out of his internal exile to Siberia. So there are all kinds of interlinkages. Stalin was also very keen on or oh, The Soviets were very keen on, on Stephenson's approach to the Arctic, so the idea of it as a place for economic and political development. Uh,
0: sorry, just to interrupt. Yeah. The way that you're talking about Stalin being there as a, a prisoner of the, the Czar's uh, up in some labor camp in, in the Arctic Circle... This really speaks to the whole idea that, that the the Arctic was a place where you put the people that you really didn't want. It was remote, it was cold, it was brutal. It wasn't a nice place to be, but it also got them so far out of harm's way that that, that you, were, you were free of all of these nasty prisoners.
1: Uh, precisely, and that wasn't always viewed as a negative. I mean, there, there were also religious groups, who Russian religious groups, who went up to the Arctic precisely because that isolation was equated with isolation from the rest of humanity was equated with a proximity to god Mm -hmm. Uh, and there is this spiritual undertone uh, in the way that many people think about the arctic Um, but it's quite deep also in russian thinking as well now of course for stalin it wasn't so much about that it was much more about the economic resources of the partly about imprisoning people in the arctic but with a with an end in sight which was using the natural resources of the Arctic. He really didn't care about uh, the human cost. He didn't care about the environmental cost. Um, What he cared about was securing, as he saw it, the Soviet Union. And the way he thought that he would do that would be through um, gigantesque uh, and grotesque uh, mining and other projects in the north. Uh, such
0: as the Belomor Canal, which was such as the Belomor Canal, the link such between as Kolyma, the yeah.
1: such as such as Norilsk. I mean, many of these many of the population centres in the Russian Arctic today, um, they got their start because of um, forced labour, because of the, the Soviet system. The city of Murmansk, for example, the biggest city in the Arctic, um, it was only founded in 1916, um, so so one year before the Russian Revolution. Um, at its height in the 1980s, it was a city of half a million. Mm-hmm. So, in many ways, the Russian Arctic today even is the, the physical legacy. In many cases, the physical bears the physical scars. In many cases, of the Soviet Arctic.
0: Mm-hmm. But also, if you go back to that period, this great opening up was seen as as something in the Stakhanovite tradition. Even yes. if it was done by prisoners, it was done in this uh, in this tradition of heroic labour. Um, when I was living in Poland, good. Goodness me, best part of a decade ago. My assistant yep. out there, he did a trip off to Belarus or uh, Ukraine, and he came back with one of the those old packets yes. of cigarettes still on yes, sale. Bellamore. Bellamore Canal cigarettes. Bellam, uh, and it has the you know it has the little map on it. Uh, they're the grotesque cigarettes. They're the the, the little yes. uh, what's the name of the black tobacco that goes in. There? Uh, makoshka or something like that. Right. Someone will probably correct me. And then you know, instead of a filter, it's just an empty tube, several inches long, to, as a way of sort of uh, making it slightly. That less sounds like poisonous. that sounds like
1: standard Soviet cigarettes to me.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. So yes, I still have that that pack, but it, it shows that it was um, it was something that was celebrated.
1: It was something that was celebrated, and it's something which is um, often forgotten now in the West. Mm-hmm. We don't actually know very much about the history of Soviet exploration of the Arctic, but it is. Um, a very glorious history in in many respects. You know, alongside the history of the Gulag, you have the history of exploration, which is quite heroic. In fact, the organization which um, in the early days was actually in some respects responsible for much of the forced labor in the Arctic was also responsible for um, some of these uh, expeditions of of exploration. And indeed, the first heroes of the Soviet Union in the 1930s um, were the Arctic pilots who... um, Rescued the crew and passengers on a on a, a Soviet ship which became locked in the ice north of Siberia. So, before the Great Patriotic War, um, Arctic exploration was was taken as proof of Soviet modernity, Soviet technological prowess, proof of the notion that the Soviet Union was going to conquer nature. It became part of the well, the construction of the Soviet narrative, in effect.
0: Mm. Let's spin the globe a bit, because one other thing that, that fascinated me, and it still involves Russia, was the Alaskan Purchase. Yes. Um, obviously, this quite enormous territory, but it, it wasn't always part of the, the US. Um, it was bought from uh, bought from Russia.
1: It was bought from Russia for $7.2 million uh, in 1860. $7.2 million, by the way, was even then a lot of money. In fact, more money then, of course, than it is now. Um, so the end of the... Civil War in America. Um, the Secretary of State Seward um, is a- actually makes several attempts to buy various territories for the United States. He sees the United States expanding through purchases uh, as it has in the past,
0: like uh, like the Louisiana Purchase, like
1: the like the, like the Louisiana Purchase exactly. Um, just a few years previously, the Russians have managed to secure a toehold. Uh, in the Russian Far East. Mm-hmm. And so this Alaskan territory, which they've had for years, but which hasn't been terribly profitable, they decide maybe actually this isn't um, particularly strategically worthwhile now or not economically viable, so um, we'll sell it to the Americans. Now, you can imagine how Soviet historians viewed this. <laughs> Soviet historians viewed this as you know, a tremendous betrayal uh, on the part of uh, Russian, the, the Russian uh, Empire, um, obviously, only attracted by the sight of of dollars.
0: Mm, absolutely, and uh, I don't think that it's giving too much away in the book to suggest that Soviet historians looked back at it and and it was one of those great moments where what have we done?
1: Precisely, precisely. What 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 have we done?
0: Was there ever any speculation about what would have happened if the Soviet Union had extended all the way through into the North American continent?
1: Well, I mean, it's not hard to speculate what might have happened. <laughs> um, I think it would have. It would have made far more complex, of course, the geopolitics of North America. Mm-hmm. It would have made the Monroe Doctrine very hard to sustain. Mm-hmm. Um, it might have meant that um, Canada wouldn't have emerged in the way that it did. Mm-hmm. Um, because, of course, one of the great things about the North American continent is that you know, first of all, you've got the Atlantic on one side, the Pacific on the other. A relatively small land border with Mexico. Uh, and you've only got two countries in the north. You've got Canada, which of course was um, a British colony in Dominion, um, and then uh, and then and then the United States. So really, um, international relations were in North America were relatively simple because there were really only two parts to it mm-hmm. um, from 1867 onwards.
0: Absolutely, and um, in the book you also talk about the idea that this idea of purchasing could have meant the the United States trying to purchase, for instance, Greenland or Iceland.
1: Yes. I mean, one of the one of the documents I came across um, in the process of research was a a sort of essentially an assessment of the value of Greenland and Iceland potentially to the United States. Uh, And there were people who thought that actually, you know, okay, fine, the U.S. has bought Alaska, but actually maybe also the U.S. should buy uh, Greenland and Iceland um, partly for the natural resources but partly also because there was this idea that Canada at some point Canada remember only became a dominion in 1867 so it only mm-hmm. actually properly came together in 1867 many people in the united <laughs> states thought well canada one day is going to you know it's pretty really going to become american it's it's natural mm-hmm. um but we can help that process along and we can help that process along in large part by enclosing canada on the one side by purchasing Alaska, and on the, on the other side, potentially by purchasing Greenland. Now, you know, various things happened, which meant that it never actually turned out that way. Um, but there have been the idea of the U.S. purchase of Greenland. Um, you know, has has arisen again. It arose again in 1917. Perry, um, the great explorer, um, Captain Perry, recommended it. It arose again um, towards the end of the Second World War. And interestingly, just last week. Uh, in the latest release of uh, of, um, of WikiLeaks, there was um, a cable which was um, quoted, which um, spoke about America securing its interests in Greenland, in part because uh, they saw an increasing interest of China in Greenland. Um, so, you know, the, the, the proximity of uh, the United States to Greenland, um, the fact that Greenland is part of the North American continent. Um, means that there will probably be always, you know, at the back of some Americans' minds, there will be an idea perhaps quite similar to the, 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 the Russian idea about the sale of Alaska. Well, you know, maybe we missed a trick.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, can we move on? Seeing as we're talking about the historical background of it, we shouldn't, of course, forget about the native peoples. Yes. Uh, You mentioned Inuit earlier on. Um, What kind of... um, Well, what can you tell us about them? I I mean, they're they're scattered, very traditional ways of life, often very localized. Um, What's the background? Are are they as interlinked as the geography of the area looks from the North Pole? And how far far north do they extend?
1: Well, very interesting you said ways of life, which is actually very... completely correct. Mm -hmm. Some people talk about Inuit lifestyles, but the people of the north themselves are very keen to say life ways. This is mm-hmm. just the way that people live, sealing, hunting, etc. cetera. Um, these days, of course, there are political organizations which do bring together um, the peoples of the North, but they are quite fragmented in many respects. You've got many different languages. You've got many different tribes. Um, you've got communalities, similarities, um, but also differences of, of language and tradition, um, et cetera. And of course, you have very different experiences Within the different Arctic states, the relationship between uh, indigenous groups and the state is is not generally a positive one across the Arctic, um, but it is different uh, in different states. Generally, in much of the, if you like, political history of the Arctic, um, the indigenous people have not featured until the mid-20th century, particularly. Um, For example, if we go back to the 1867 purchase of Alaska... um, there is a clause which speaks about what Russians, what ethnic Russians in Alaska, can do. They can stay in Alaska and eventually become American citizens with all the rights that that entails, um, or they can go back to Russia. And there's a certain period of time when they which they have to to make up their mind. Um, when it comes to the indigenous peoples, there's just one line that basically says the administration will um, undertake what it sees as necessary in order to, you know, maintain their peace. You know, there's no question of people being accorded rights. It's one line. They're essentially considered chattel. Uh, And up until, really up until the mid-20th century, that was actually the fate for uh, for many groups across the Arctic,
0: did that vary between countries? You mentioned uh, the United States. There, I, if I think of um, of Inuit, I, I I probably think first of all about um, Canada which has had a great program of extending rights to indigenous peoples. And uh, to a lesser extent, probably somewhere like Greenland. And that's mainly because when you look at a map of Greenland, so many of the names on it are incomprehensible. And I just, yes. uh, yeah, um, and, that, and that sort of leads me to think, well, there's a great indigenous, uh, you know, it's not all Danish, it's, it's actually indigenous.
1: Uh, absolutely. And I mean, again, talk, talking about that map of Greenland when I was a child, on that map, the name of Nuuk was Gotthab. That, mm-hmm. that was the Danish name. Now, of course, it's Nuuk. Uh, and uh, Greenland has self-government. And at some point in the future, who knows, uh, maybe it will have independence. Mm-hmm. And maybe you will have the first indigenous state in the Arctic. Mm-hmm. At, what you have at the moment is you have Greenland, which has self-rule. So basically, it controls nearly everything apart from uh, foreign policy and defense policy, which still is, mm-hmm. uh, is controlled by the Danes or... Um, the, uh, the issue is somewhat split. Um, in Canada, you have um, Nunavut, which is a territory which is, is governed. Um, in the U.S., um, basically what happened was um, the, the desire to construct the Trans-Alaska Pipeline mm-hmm. became the spark, if you like, for a settlement being made um, on Alaska Native Claims and part of, part of the Alaska Native Claims Act. Uh, of 1971. So um, there are sort of different histories of uh, indigenous peoples across the Arctic. Of course, in the Soviet Union, that in a sense, the, the, the story is the most odd because the Soviet Union in you know, in its very early phases, um, uh, like the idea of lots of um, autonomous republics mm-hmm. for different peoples. Um, because of course, communism was supposed to be liberating. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, the reality was somewhat different.
0: I was going to concentrate on on Greenland uh, for a bit, but that yeah. would kind of go on to the geographical side of it, which is uh, which I, I suppose is is much of the second half of the book. But before then, I, I just wanted to talk about uh, one particular little uh, chunk of the book which I found very interesting, and it was the idea of the Norwegian Soviet border. Seeing as we're talking about the historical things, yes. and it was all—I mean, of course, this was this was a border between NATO. It was a direct border between NATO and the Soviet Union. Um, Trying to think, yeah, a place like Turkey obviously had borders. But this was quite a, you know, it was quite a tense area. Uh, And this was one of my first um, thoughts about the Arctic. I always think about... uh, the British Army train or the British Navy trains its Marines and other soldiers in Arctic warfare up in Norway. And I always thought, what must it be like on that border? I mean, what can you do to stop the, uh, the, the, the Soviet military machine if war ever breaks out? And you, you go into a, a few details of what that would have been like.
1: Well, I mean, I, I think the, the truth is that actually the Norwegians couldn't have done very much. One of the people I spoke to uh, up there... Um, who's responsible for the border on the Norwegian side these days. It's worth pointing out, of course, that the relationship between Norway and Russia is now, of course, very, very different mm-hmm. um, to the relationship which pertained in the 1970s and 1980s when tensions were very, very high and when the Arctic was a crucial part of the Soviet Union's military strategy. Um, so this this guy who'd been a, a young soldier um, placed on the border in the 1970s, um, very proud of his his work there, but he realizes now, of course, that he was essentially a... Tripwire. Um, mm-hmm. If the Soviets had actually decided to uh, invade Western Europe, and if they decided to invade that part of Western Europe through Norway, um, then he would have been wiped out in instance. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this this little neck of Norway, um, you know, would have been would have been overrun um, fairly rapidly, as as indeed had happened in the past. I mean, the the, the charming town of of Kierkenes, Mm-hmm. Um, where I went to early earlier this year, um, that was completely flattened in the Second World War, mm-hmm. um, as was the Russian city of Murmansk, mm-hmm. um, because that was a, a, a that because of course that was a an area where the British shipped material to the Soviet Union, and the, the Germans who controlled Norway during the Second World War um, were constantly trying to sort of uh, push that back and render that more difficult. Mm. So it's a little corner of Europe which has been fought over quite a lot in the 20th century.
0: Absolutely. I mean, those those, those convoys, they're obviously a very large part of the Second World War, but they're in the First World War as well. Wasn't yep. it uh, Lord Kitchener died on a ship that was sunk off Norway, I think, on one of these convoys around to...
1: That's yeah. something I didn't know.
0: <laughs> um, anyway, moving on from that, um, uh, and actually staying with the military asp- yeah. aspect, it, it's strategic, as well as these boyhood memories of uh, wondering, you know, well, what do they do on this on this strange bit of border? Yes. I think of uh, the Doctor Strangelove film and all the B-52s yes. patrolling off the off the coast of um, of northern Soviet Union, and then that fantastic bit towards the end where you see <laughs> it flying over northern Siberia. Fantastic
1: and, or somewhat disturbing, Liz. It
0: was yes well one yeah, it was a fantastic film but you wouldn't want it wouldn't want it to, to uh, be anything like reality um and the idea of all of the submarines obviously uh, yes. beeping away hidden under the pack ice of the of the arctic sea it's uh, it's an area that uh, strategically it's it's very important
1: well i mean it was absolutely crucial during the cold war mm-hmm. um there's a quotation which i use in the book from 1950 a a man called Hap Arnold, General Hap Arnold, an Air Force General. And he says, uh, he said, um, if there was to be a Third World War, its strategic center would be the North Pole. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the point he was really making was that in the age of long-range bombers, later in the age of intercontinental ballistic missiles, uh, and later still in the age of nuclear submarines, the Arctic was absolutely crucial The bombers would fly across the Arctic, the ICBMs would fly across the Arctic, um, Mm -hmm. the submarine fleets would hide under the Arctic ice, use that as cover, and then um, were there to be a a war, missiles would would pop up from the Arctic. Mm -hmm. So from a military perspective, the Arctic was absolutely crucial throughout the Cold War period. Uh, When you get the end of the Cold War, (laughs) of course, when the Soviet Union imploded, then First of all, Soviet military capacity was um, vastly, vastly, vastly reduced. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in, in some senses, we saw that. If you remember, um, one of the first episodes in uh, Prime Minister Putin's presidency was yes. the, the incident with the Kursk, mm-hmm. uh, the, the Soviet, well, Russian, sorry, submarine, which sank. And that was, if you like, a sort of the, the, um, well, one piece of evidence of the degradation of Soviet material uh, in the 1990s. Um, now the military constellation in the Arctic is somewhat different. We're not in a new Cold War uh, Mm -hmm. in the north. I think it's very important that people realize that although the Arctic is of tremendous strategic importance and there are some signs of some elements of uh, remilitarization, that doesn't mean that we've returned to the level of militarization uh, or the level of um, potential conflict in the Arctic that we had in the Cold War,
0: my favourite uh, anecdote about the uh, the decline in Russian military capacity was I, I don't know if you remember it was going back a few years, a Russian um, vessel, naval vessel, had yep. gone all the way over to visit Mr. Chavez down in Venezuela. Oh yes, and there was uh, some American state department spokesman or whatever was asked what he thought about it. And he said, well, I'm actually quite surprised. I didn't think that they had any boats that could go that far. So, (laughs) Anyway, Venezuela is a long way from the Arctic. Um, I wanted to quickly touch upon one other uh, country that we've mentioned, Iceland. Now Iceland, a small place doing very well for itself very recently. And then something of a collapse. Um, Can you fill in a few details about this quite peculiar place?
1: It is. I mean, the the important thing about Iceland is that it's very, very, very small. Uh, You know, population of around three hundred thousand. Everyone knows each other uh, in Iceland. Well, they're all related, aren't they? They have Uh, an
0: astonishing genetic similarity. They they they
1: they, they, they do need to have an astonishing genetic similarity, which actually makes them um, a very makes Iceland a very useful place to do certain kinds of medical research, precisely Mm -hmm. because of that that genetic reality. Sorry, similarity. Interestingly, there are quite a lot of people with red hair. Mm-hmm. in Iceland, which is somewhat surprising and which um, some people uh, think is relates to um, an early period of history when they were um, Irish who were brought over as slaves, in effect. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, we won't talk about that. <laughs> uh, so, uh, you know, I, Iceland is a very interesting place. It's you know, traditionally been a fishing economy. Um, it's traditionally been an economy on the margins of Europe, an economy which is, in fact, marginal in every respect, um, to some degree at the mercy of the elements. Mm -hmm. Um, But Icelanders are very close-knit. They're very well-educated. They're, in many respects, very open and entrepreneurial. Um, uh, In the 1990s, um, the Icelanders saw the great opportunities of globalisation and financial liberalisation, and they went for it. Mm -hmm. And Icelanders were all over the world and Icelandic banks all over the world. Um, the problem with that, of course, ultimately, was that um, Icelanders managed to attract lots and lots of deposits. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then when things went, went belly up, um, they were stuck with um, uh, the British and the Dutch and others saying, well, we want those deposits back. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that has been, of course, a tremendous political problem for Iceland and a tremendous economic problem for Iceland. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're going through somewhat tough times at the moment, mm. um, and they're looking for other ways of rebuilding their economy, which I'm sure they will do.
0: Mm. There's a My favorite quote in the whole book is about Iceland, and it's, <laughs> um, economically, Icelanders seem to have a knack of riding the good times, surviving the bad times, and failing to prepare for either, <laughs> which I seem… I think sums it up. Uh, but this this also um, brings us to another aspect of, of life in the Arctic, the resilience. It's a tough place to live. And if you are from the Arctic, then you tend to be pretty hardy. Uh, if you look at Norway, for instance, you talk about the fact that it is, I mean, it's phenomenally wealthy. In fact, it, it's possibly one of the only countries that actually has, has had the curse of uh, enormous amounts of oil and gas and actually managed to do something productive with it as opposed to destroy their own economy. Yes. And partly this is because there is such a memory of hardship and such a memory of you know, of, of core values. They they don't take
1: things for granted. Absolutely. I mean, it, in, in most of these places, if they are wealthy now, mm-hmm. they certainly were not wealthy 100 years ago. Uh, yeah. In fact, they were very poor. Uh, it's easy to forget now that Norway used to be one of the poorest countries in Europe. Now, of mm-hmm. course, it's one of the richest countries in the world. Um, Iceland similarly used to be very poor it 's had a knock recently, but it 's in many respects still mm-hmm. um, quite wealthy. Um, if you look at the Canadian Arctic, the picture is is somewhat more difficult from an economic perspective, uh, and similarly in the in American Arctic and of course in, in the Russian Arctic, where all the all the structures of the Soviet economy which if you like supported mm-hmm. um, Arctic cities arctic industrialization because you didn't have a market economy and so you know if the government said build something north of the arctic circle well that's what you didn't that was what you were supposed to do um transitioning from the soviet economy to a market economy a lot of these population centers factories not just in the arctic but all across uh, the former soviet union have become stranded not economically viable and there's a question of what to what to what to do with them
0: let's Go to Greenland, and, and this is almost the bridge into the geographic side of it, because Greenland is part of Denmark, still constitutionally part of, of Denmark. Part but of the Kingdom of Denmark. The Kingdom of, the kingdom of Denmark. Now, uh, Denmark, uh, I've, I've got the date written down somewhere here. Uh, 2009, it signed a, a new relationship. Basically, it's becoming more autonomous. And when I was in the BBC, I was trying to get them to send me there uh, because... I wanted to make a program about the fact that this country in the Arctic, global warming happening. This was a country that might actually be able to benefit from global warming, you know, opening up of maritime routes and also being able to get at the mineral deposits and possibly ice uh, oil fields offshore. Um, So, yeah, it's it's a country that's doing well. And this is also about the changing geography of the Arctic.
1: Uh, Absolutely. Uh, I mean, again, Greenland, very small population. We're talking sub 60,000 here. Um, in an enormous area. Sub- yeah. I mean, w- one of my one of my favourite little facts um, about the Arctic, which was when when Greenland left the European Economic Communities, it then was, in mm-hmm. um, the early 1980s, um, the size of the European Economic Community then halved uh, as a result. Geographic of- size. Geographic <laughs> size, yes. Not population, obviously, but the geographic size then halved as a result of Greenland leaving. You know, Greenland is an actually, huge 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 area most of it covered with ice a little bit less now covered with ice than would have been the case um 10 years ago 20 years ago 30 years ago mm-hmm. um and therein lies in some respects the hopes of some greenlanders mm-hmm. um because of course the retreat of ice onshore may make prospecting for onshore minerals uh, easier of course the price of commodities tends to help uh Offshore, the retreat of sea ice may make prospecting for oil and gas easier. Mm -hmm. And indeed, there's a a British company which is at the the forefront of much of that and will be um, doing some exploration this summer. And there are many Greenlanders who are very, very keen on this because um, although Greenland is now economically dependent on Denmark still, Mm -hmm. it receives a huge annual subsidy on a per capita basis, about $10,000 a head. Um, perhaps if there is significant oil and gas development, in fact, not even significant oil and gas development, even quite small oil and gas development, there's only 60,000 60, people. people, then then they might be able to uh, be economically self-sufficient and therefore possibly aspire to independence. Now there's a the question of whether they actually really want independence. You know, perhaps the relationship they have with Denmark now is maybe it's a pretty good one. Mm-hmm. Um But that possibility of independence will certainly be there if there is economic self-sufficiency. And that's one reason why climate change is viewed as a positive by many people, um, not all. And it's also one reason uh, why the development of natural resources, mineral resources, oil and gas resources in Greenland is viewed by many people as as a positive. And it's not just in Greenland. That's actually um, not uncommon in many different parts of the Arctic because, of course... It's about jobs. It's about prosperity.
0: Mm-hmm. And what we have is, if if the whole area warms up, yeah, uh, it opens up the possibility of exploiting resources more. But I I was recently at a lecture by another guy who's written a a, a book a, far more geographical. With a far less history than you, uh, Lawrence Smith, who wrote a book called *The yeah. New North*, yeah. and one of the interesting things that he was saying is that if you look at the way that uh, warming and you know the freeing up of of certain uh, routes, etc., is, is is actually going to affect population patterns, he was saying that it's going to increase the importance of places like ports mm-hmm. and places where you can exploit you know off, offshore. Um, hydrocarbon fields or whatever but actually it makes the land masses within the arctic harder to travel across because of course you have things like ice roads uh and ice you road have truckers ice road truckers and you have permafrost which you know uh it's there it's permanent it, it means that everything's quite solid but if you take away or the, the permafrost starts to melt suddenly you end up with uh with it, it's this enormous spongy bog that's really, really quite difficult to uh, to travel across. So it's, it's, a, it's a strange picture and a lot more complicated than I'd, I'd imagined.
1: It, it does indeed change, change geography. I mean, just just two examples of that. Um, when I was in Greenland, I went on a, a trip by boat from Nuke up the coast to an area where they are prospecting for various minerals, uh, iron and, and platinum and, and others. And, you know, in one sense it feels quite remote, but of course, if you have resources and you want to get those resources out of Greenland, then this huge, wide fjord, which is more ice-free than it used to be, that's, I mean, I remember the guy I was with, he said, well, no, this, is, this is our highway. Mm. Uh, and he's right. Uh, and similarly, the, 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 the Russians used to think that climate change might benefit them. They weren't terribly worried about climate change, you know. If the, if the world warms up, well, we're a very cold country, will become a bit warmer. Great. Um, I think as they've begun to think a little bit more about it, they realized, actually, they've got all kinds of infrastructure, mm. which is stuck on the permafrost, including pipelines, for example. Including buildings. Including well. buildings, including large numbers of buildings. Um, what will happen uh, when climate change begins to undermine the foundations of those buildings? And yes, of course, it does mean that there is a greater attraction in some respects to offshore developments um because there you don't have the permafrost problem you may have other problems mm-hmm. but you Drifting don't you, pack you, ice but you don't have the perma <laughs> well, but you don't have the permafrost problem
0: okay um and uh, when we look at the, the the way that this could affect the arctic i mean after all your, your book is called the future history of the arctic um it's go- going to become economically more important. We talked about its strategic importance, but uh, if things start being opened up, whether it's routes across the, the, the top of the land masses for, for sea, that could cut uh, some of the distances that certain ships have to go dramatically. And then you've got all of the mineral resources that it might, um, and, and oil resources that it might, it might open up. Um, there's a bit of a carve up of the, of the Arctic going on at the minute because of this.
1: Well, I mean, in terms of of the the economic potential of the Arctic, um, it's worth bearing in mind that there is already oil and gas produced in the Arctic. Mm -hmm. Um, There are already minerals produced in the Arctic. Mm -hmm. Um, So what we're seeing, we might see, would be an acceleration of those processes. In terms of shipping, um, there's quite a lot of shipping which, of course, relates to uh, mineral extraction or which relates to oil and gas. So that's the first increase of shipping you're likely to see. Mm -hmm. Now, longer term, you might get transpolar shipping routes but those are those are probably a way away Mm -hmm. and those depend you know partly on ice but that's actually pretty uncertain um and will continue to be uncertain but also partly on the technologies available and what it is that you're shipping and all those kinds of things in terms of the carve-up of the arctic well the arctic states have been the arctic coastal states have been very very keen to point out that there is in fact a body of law Uh, the law of the sea, Mm -hmm. which doesn't quite determine what they own in the North, but it lays down the criteria by which, uh, by which they may make claims as to what they own in terms of um, the sea and the seabed.
0: It's continental shelves.
1: Exactly. The continental shelf. It's extraordinarily complicated. So I won't go into the details of it. I remember I looked at the, the manual, which, um, which um, which people are supposed to use in order to submit their claims. The manual is several hundred pages long. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, This is a very complex process. It's also quite a slow process, by the way, um, because there's a, a committee in, in New York which has to look through um, the various claims which are made and d- decide which ones are valid and which ones are not. And it's not only about the Arctic, of course. This is the law of the sea applies all mm-hmm. across the world. Um, so it's a slow process. Not everything will be decided immediately. the The salient point really is that First of all, um, although the law of the sea establishes the scientific basis on which states may claim the sea and the seabed, it, it doesn't mean that there won't necessarily be overlaps in claims. Mm-hmm. Uh, overlaps, of course, will have to be dealt with between the parties. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at the same time, there are various areas of dispute, some very small and not particularly important, others quite large. There's one very large area of dispute, or you, used to be an area of dispute between Norway and Russia in the Barents Sea, which has recently been actually agreed. Mm -hmm. Um, So after 40 years of on-off negotiations, discussions, Norwegians and the Russians finally came to an agreement. Uh, The reason for that, in my view, is that you weren't going to get oil and gas development in this quite large segment of the Barents Sea, so just off the northern coast of of Norway and Russia, uh, if you didn't get uh, political agreement and therefore legal certainty as to as to who owned what but now that's happened of course that opens the way um for oil and gas development to occur
0: and of course this is almost for russia what the uh, what siberia and the arctic were for the soviet union it's another chance to be able to stake out an enormous claim on on areas that uh, i mean as as most people uh with any sense of, of history know uh Whenever the oil price goes up, Russia suddenly seems a little bit more virile. This is, uh, this is uh, I suppose, Russia with all of its problems like declining population, et etc., cetera, et cetera. This is its meal ticket in the future.
1: Well, it seems more virile, but of course the problem that Russia has is that it actually acts as a block against diversification of the economy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and everyone knows the Russian economy needs to diversify in the future. It's interesting to note that um, hydrocarbons actually represent a greater percentage of Russia's exports than they do of Norway's exports. Mm-hmm. Think about that. Russia is a country of, what, 143 million people? And declining. And declining. <laughs> uh, 143, 142. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and Norway, of course, is a country of, what, four and a half, five yes. million people? It's uh, a fairly remarkable fact. It's one which is recognized by um, many Russian government officials. You'll hear President Medvedev talk about the need to diversify the Russian economy. People know that, but actually making it happen uh, is very, very hard. The other thing, of course, is that um, Russia is a country of very, very large numbers, from you know, the number of square kilometers, which it covers you know, far, far more than any other country on the face of the planet, to the potential value of the natural resources which Russia has. I mean, the figure in um, Putin's... Uh, thesis or in an article he wrote, um, before he became president, I think he valued the, the, the natural resources value of Russia, you know, many, 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 many trillions of dollars. But as always with natural resources, it's not about the natural resources in the ground. It's not about the scale of the resources. (coughs) It's about whether you can, it's about whether you can get them to market and whether Mm -hmm. you can get the market in a way which is obviously technologically viable, um, commercially viable, and increasingly, of course, in a way which is relatively environmentally friendly. Uh, And that question of whether you can actually access Arctic resources in a way which is not extraordinarily environmentally destructive is one of the absolutely key, uh, as it should be, absolutely key political issues within many of the Arctic states and, of course, between the Arctic states.
0: Mm. Well, without wanting to do down your book, it's, it's obvious from talking to you that, that one of the first things that you did was you found such a cracking subject to write about that, uh, you know, I mean, there's a lot of work that's gone into the book, but my goodness me, you chose the right subject to write about. It's going to become more and more important in the future. Um, so uh, we've used up quite a bit of your time, so uh, we'll leave it there. But there's one more question just to ask uh, at of the course. end of it. And that is, um, over the last few months, what have you read that has really changed the way that you... That, that you think about uh, Europe, the Arctic, any of, these, any of these areas we've been discussing?
1: Well, a couple of things. I mean, I've just read <coughs> uh, actually a few things today which have not entirely changed my thinking about the Arctic, mm-hmm. uh, thankfully. Um, the <laughs> book's still valid. Uh, <laughs> you don't have to rewrite but, Yeah, it. <laughs> I don't have to rewrite it, no. Um, but which do, you know, do shape it somewhat. Um, one was actually a, a very interesting article on a, a blog, a Time magazine blog, about China's interest in the Arctic, which is somewhat nebulous, but increasing. Mm-hmm. So you know, people think about the Arctic, and, well, and they think, well, it's, it's all about the Arctic states. Well, in the future, maybe not. Mm-hmm. One of the interesting things about the Arctic is it's becoming globalized. It's becoming affected by what happens not just within the Arctic rim, but far beyond it. And at the same time, lots of non-Arctic states, including China, uh, are beginning to take an interest in what happens in the Arctic. And I read an article about that today, which was um, confirming aspects of that. Um, the other thing, of course, which has um, been in the media in the UK, at least, over the last few weeks and months, and may still be in the media uh, over the next weeks and months, is <coughs> the prospect of a deal between BP and Rosneft. Um, so Rosneft being the, the Russia's um, national oil company. Now, that, that, that deal now seems to be off. Um, but I think the, the point is really that uh, Russia is now looking at oil and gas developments in the north, it's looking for international partners in the north, and those international partners will, if they're not British companies, they may be American companies, they may be Norwegian companies, they may be French companies, um, so this is, this, is, this is an area where actually uh, Europe and Russia may be um, finding themselves in a, a, a new and interesting relationship. From the perspective of the European Union, um, the European Union got off to a very bad start when the Arctic returned as being an important international international strategic issue. It got off to a bad start because it, there were some Europeans who appeared to be suggesting that, there should, that, that the Arctic was like the Antarctic and there should be an international treaty in the Arctic like there is in the Antarctic. And that this treaty should say such things as no mineral exploitation. And of course, the Arctic state said, well, the Arctic's completely be different. People live there. We're already exploiting the natural resources. There's international law around the Arctic already. We don't need a new treaty. And so, fairly or otherwise, the EU got off to a bad start, and they've been kind of trying to, trying to get back into the game um, ever since. And recently, I'm, I'm pleased to say, um, the... The, uh, the sounds coming out of Brussels are far more positive, far more constructive uh, and far less presumptuous um, than they appeared a couple of years ago.
0: You've been listening to an interview with Charles Emerson, the author of The Future History of the Arctic. I'm Nicholas Walton, the presenter of New Books in European Studies. Have a great week.